1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1859 murder of U.S. Attorney Philip Barton Key II by Congressman Daniel Sickles.
0: Yeah, throughout the confrontation, Key really tries to stop Sickles from killing him. Um, Sickles has come armed with multiple weapons In a trench coat on an unseasonably February day And uh, it was lucky for him um, Because the guns he brought uh, He had a number of misfires He ran out of ammo in one gun Um, And so he he actually has to use multiple weapons To kill Key And so Key is shot multiple times Over the course of a fairly lengthy confrontation uh, Begging for his life Accusing Sickles of murdering him um, he very much understands what's happening to him. He knows he's in a bad situation and, um, you know, can't get out of it.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy as always that you are here with me. If you're looking to help the show out, a couple of ways you can do it. If you have never left a review on iTunes before, I always appreciate you throwing a handful of stars my way and a kind word. If you'd prefer to help financially, that is very much appreciated too. You can go to Patreon.com slash most notorious. I'm so happy to have Chris DeRose with me today. He is a New York Times best-selling author, a former law professor, and former senior counsel for the Arizona Attorney General. His books include Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe, The Bill of Rights and the Election That Saved a Nation, and also Congressman Lincoln. The Making of America's Greatest President. The book he's here to chat about today is called Star-Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial That Changed America. Thank you for joining me.
0: Glad to be here, Eric. Thank you.
1: So where did you first learn about this story?
0: I was researching a book called The President's War, which was about the five former presidents who lived to see the American Civil War. And in 1859, they are appropriately focused on all of the major problems confronting the country. Uh, You know, the threat of disunion and civil war and their letters and diaries take on these grave tones. And then suddenly in February of that year, all they can talk about is the Sickles affair. And so I said, what could possibly distract these figures from the momentous questions facing the country. I said, I have to go check out what the Sickles Affair is. And I said, okay, you know, admittedly, that's a very good story. And so it was one of those things that I had thought a lot about uh, in the years since and uh, decided that it really deserved a book of its own because it's an incredible story in its own right. It's an amazing trial. Um, People in the story, too good to make up. And uh, of course, it's a setting for a lot of the people who become very familiar to us in the Civil War and what they were doing in the lead up to that conflict.
1: It's a pretty interesting time in our nation's history. Um, And you paint a pretty atmospheric uh, picture of pre-Civil War Washington, D.C. What would life have been like as a congressman or a congressman's wife in the city at that time?
0: it was quite a glamorous life. Uh, they had these big extravagant parties that people would host at their homes, and then afterwards at Willard's Hotel. And so it was really a, a never-ending party. You know, they would they would legislate by day and run the country by day, and at night you would just have these grandiose social events. Um, each one would try to do the other in terms of being elaborate and fun. And so um, this is what Washington, D.C. was doing as the country was sliding towards civil war. What was the political climate in the city? So you have these increasing tensions. You know, it used to be that people were, they were meeting on friendly terms, Northerners, Southerners, Republicans and Democrats. Um, And increasingly, you know, when you start off the book, everyone's getting along and showing up at the same parties, and that's starting to disintegrate. Um, in early 1859. And so um, you have a lot of tensions, you had a lot of physical violence in Congress, you know, I describe one free for all during the vote over Kansas. Uh, so re- really, a very, very tense city, and a social life that's almost divorced from the political tensions going on in Congress.
1: Would you mind summarizing what, what the big issue with Kansas was?
0: Not at all. So you've got um, the, in 1820, America uh, agreed to the Missouri Compromise. So we're going to have uh, new states above this line are going to be free states. New states below that line will be slave states. And of course, they're trying to bring in states in tandem so that neither side gains an advantage in the Senate or in, co- or in the House. And so Kansas was above the Missouri Compromise line and therefore should have been a free state. And instead, they try an approach called popular sovereignty, where they're going to let the people of the territory vote on whether they want to be free or slave. And this, in theory, um, would have been uh, the same result because it was overwhelmingly populated by people who who wanted to live in a free state. They were mostly coming from the North. They were either anti-slavery in their attitudes, or they were working class white people who didn't want to compete with free labor. And in theory, this would have worked out the same way, but the slave interest tried to hijack the elections. So you had um, ruffians coming over the border from Missouri, bribing people, threatening people with violence. You have a series of stolen elections in Kansas that has turned it into a slave territory where the vast majority of the people who live there want it to be a free territory. And so you have a lot of tensions in Congress over these flagrantly stolen elections in Kansas. And as a result, having a, a slave territory north of the Missouri compromise line. And so it's just an incredibly tense fault line running through American society and reflected in its politics at the time.
1: So Dan Sickles and his wife, Teresa, can you tell us about their individual backgrounds and how they came to meet each other?
0: Yeah. So Dan Sickles is a a restless guy. Um, You know, he, he, Set out on the road and worked as a journeyman printer. And um, really what he wanted to do was go to college and his, his parents weren't uh, on board with that idea. Finally, his father caves in if he'll just come back to New York City and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll pay for him to, to go to the University of New York, which is now New York University. And as part of preparation for going to college, uh, you would board with a family that would teach you and uh, prepare you, give you the, the foundational learning that you would need to, to succeed at college. And Sickles boards with uh, the de Ponte family in, in New York City. Lorenzo de Ponte, a fascinating character in his own right. He was a, a defrocked Venetian priest who had caroused his way through Europe. He was the libertist for many of Mozart's most famous operas, and came to the United States and started the first opera company in New York City. Uh, So this is a a really interesting guy. He has a daughter that is presented as an adopted daughter, but is probably his biological daughter from an affair that he had in his 60s. And her daughter was Teresa. So Daniel is boarding with the DePonte family and learning languages, learning history, learning all of the the basic foundational instruction he would need to to go to New York University. And he meets Teresa when she's a little girl. And, of course, they will uh, stay in touch throughout the years. He stays in touch with the family. And uh, she's a little older uh, when they meet later in life. And uh, he falls in love with her and proposes marriage. And they're married in secret uh, against the wishes of her family.
1: Did she fall as madly for him as he for her?
0: I think it's safe to say she loved him every bit as much as he loved her. She is in a uh, Catholic girls high school at the time that they meet and her family wants her to stay in school and not to get married right away. And so there's every reason to believe she's just as in love with him as he is with her.
1: So Dan Sickles was an ambitious man, a very willful man. Can you walk us through his journey to Congress? Was the road difficult for him?
0: Yeah, so Dan Sickles goes where if you're an ambitious young Democrat in New York City, the road to political success leads through Tammany Hall. And so, uh, you know, Tammany Hall is a political machine, it's also a physical location with a bar and a meeting room. And so, if you're upwardly mobile in New York Democratic politics, in this era, you are hanging out at Tammany Hall and trying to make friends and get ahead. And so he's elected to the New York Assembly in Albany. He becomes the city attorney for New York City. And he meets someone who makes an introduction to James Buchanan, who is on his way to the United Kingdom to serve as ambassador. And they really hit it off. You It looks like Buchanan is in the last position of his career, Franklin Pierce, who is the youngest president in history up to that point, has packed James Buchanan off to the United Kingdom because he sees him as a rival uh, for re-nomination in 4 years. So it does look like this is the end of Buchanan's career. On one hand, maybe a strange choice for an upwardly mobile young man to hitch his star to a guy who's in his last job. But on the other hand, this is someone that Sickles could learn a lot from and learning diplomacy at the foot of the master in a city like London and uh, Queen Victoria's court seems like a pretty interesting, exciting prospect. And so uh, Sickles and Teresa and their baby uh, will, will head to the United Kingdom and support uh, James Buchanan and his mission there as ambassador. What
1: did Sickles see in, in Buchanan? What did Buchanan see in Sickles? How did their friendship develop?
0: Well, I think that um, Sickles saw him as a mentor and someone who really understood, you know, someone who had reached the heights of politics. I mean, by this point, Buchanan had served uh, decades in the House and Senate. He'd chaired committees in Congress. He'd been the U.S. Secretary of State under Polk. And so his current mission as uh, ambassador to the United Kingdom, isn't even the most important job he's had in his career. He was ambassador to Russia. So he's a very experienced politician and diplomat, someone he could learn from, someone he really liked and valued and respected. And in Sickles, he saw probably, Buchanan probably saw images of himself as an ambitious young man, a brash young man, um, and someone who uh, he could rely on and trust uh, as an aide as he tried to conduct U.S. foreign policy in London.
1: So by the late 1850s, Buchanan was president and Sickles was in Congress. And he was well-liked, right? And obviously seen as powerful because of his relationship to Buchanan.
0: Yeah, he had a close tie to the White House. And so he was seen as very important for that reason. He, he was certainly he's introduced to uh, Barton Key Because Key hopes to retain his position as U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And he's introduced to Sickles as someone who might be able to intercede with the president. So he's got that avenue of influence, but also he's considered the best speaker in the House of Representatives. He's considered just to be a great thinker and a very forceful advocate for his positions. And so he's very well respected for that reason also, that he's just a very effective member of the House of Representatives. He represents New York City in Congress. So I think all of these things add up to a very influential congressman, certainly last but not least, his uh, position among the social order in Washington, D.C. He and his wife have rented one of the great houses on Lafayette Square across from the White House, and they give the lavish and most extravagant parties uh, that you'll find in Washington, D.C., and so they also sit high above everyone on the social ladder.
1: So what had Sickles done uh, in order to be able to afford these parties?
0: Well, he's, he's working very hard as a lawyer in New York City while he is serving in Congress. And so his congressional salary only pays the lease on his house in D.C. And so he's back and forth to New York City and keeping up his law practice to try to stay on top of this monetarily. But he's not independently wealthy. Taking a look at keith's portrait. I mean, he's,
1: he's a good looking guy <laughs> he he looks a lot like uh john hamm <laughs> from mad men
0: he does you know john hamm should play him in the movie i think that's a very i hadn't thought about it before you said that but that is quite a likeness john hamm with like an old old fashioned mustache
1: right can you talk about key um why he is in washington
0: sure well barton key is born into dc society and he is the son of one of the most prominent families in American history. The Key family were early settlers in Maryland in colonial days. And of course, his father is Francis Scott Key, the author of our national anthem, and was the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C., or for the District of Columbia. So he is the chief federal prosecutor for the U.S. Capitol. Um, And so he grows up really is an American royalty aristocracy in, uh, in the shadow of the Capitol. So he's no stranger to D.C. He's grown up in this and um, someone who's very well regarded as uh, in the social circuit, very handsome, who's described as an Apollo in appearance, the very highly sought after dinner guest, and he's a widower. And so he, he is the focus of attention for a lot of the ladies of Washington, D.C., Right. So how are the Sickles introduced to Key and what
1: kind of relationship does the trio have?
0: So they're introduced by a mutual friend who's the U.S. Marshal for D.C. Uh, Sickles and Teresa are in D.C. for the inauguration of President Buchanan. They're staying with a friend at first. He introduces them to, to Key. Key is the U.S. attorney. So theoretically, hey, it's a Democratic administration. I should get to keep my job, but of course, Pierce and Buchanan had been rivals, and Buchanan has, could have his own person he wants to put in there, and so the mutual friend asks Sickles to intercede on behalf of Key to help him stay as U.S. attorney, and Sickles obliges him. He, he goes to the president. The president agrees to keep Key in his position. They become very good friends. Uh, Sickles is often detained in the House while exciting social affairs are going on in Washington. And so he trusts Key to accompany his wife to parties and balls uh, when he's detained at work. And so they have a very friendly, very close relationship. And uh, Sickles considers him a very good friend. So your book, it it opens at
1: about where we are right now in the story. There are some rumors circulating that Daniel Sickles kind of tosses aside He's not willing to believe idle gossip. But then he gets this letter delivered to him, a mysterious letter. Can you describe the contents for us?
0: Yeah, the RPG letter. So Sickles receives an anonymous letter where he is told in great detail that his wife is having an affair with Barton Key, that they have rented a house solely for the purpose of conducting the affair. And, you know, gives all these other clues. And so it's so specific. Sickles really has to try to hammer this down. And so he finds a friend of his. You know, the Sickleses really are strangers in Washington, D.C. They haven't been there all that long. Their best friends are typically elsewhere. But Sickles did arrange uh, kind of a henchman, sidekick, friend of his from New York politics to get a job in the House of Representatives. So he calls on this friend, George Woldridge, uh, and says, hey, this is the letter I've got. We've got to find out if this is real. And so they, you know, they drive through the neighborhood, this neighborhood north of the Capitol where a lot of the working class of Washington, D.C. live. And they ask questions and conduct interviews, and Wooldridge conducts a stakeout. And he's able to verify that the woman who goes into this house to meet this man on a regular basis is, in fact, Sickles' wife, Teresa.
1: Do you have your own suspicions on who this RPG might have been?
0: I do. And, uh, you know, I really did launch, I I want your listeners to know I launched a serious investigation, and I thought I was close at various times to figuring out who it is. Um, Teresa had a stalker, and it was just a, a young man who's a New Yorker who was living in D.C., and he fell in love with Teresa. He was stalking her. He's probably the first person to find out about the affair because he's following her around. And he starts gossiping about it. It gets back to Sickles. It gets back to Key. He ends up, Beekman ends up backing down and actually leaving town as a result of this. And, you know, I think it's just as likely that if you're getting stalked once in 1859, it's probably the same person who was stalking you less than a year ago. And if you think about, you know, we start with the person's motivation, right? Because if you're warning Sickles about it, well, maybe you're warning him as a friend. But Key, we will later learn, also receives a similar letter the same day warning him that Sickles knows. So really what you're doing is trying to pit these men against each other. Maybe you're hoping that one kills the other or they both kill each other or uh, one ends up in prison. And that basically you're trying to eliminate two rival suitors for Teresa. And so, um, or, or it was someone who was jealous of Teresa. You know, so these are the only possible motivations for doing something like this. Uh, so mysterious. Um, so I actually was able to find a letter that Beekman wrote during his service in the Civil War and compared it with a handwriting expert uh, to the RPG letter. And it was not a match. So I still think Beekman is the prime suspect just based on his motivations. Also, the letter writer will strike again during the trial. And the letter sent during the trial has a New York postmark. So we're thinking of someone, okay, this is someone who's following Teresa around. We know that the letter writer is a person who was spotted wrapped up in a shawl watching the house where Key and Teresa are carrying on their affair the last day they ever meet. And that's that's almost certainly the same person who writes the letter. So Teresa's being stalked, probably the same guy who stalked her. The guy who's pitting these two men against each other is probably someone who's in love with Teresa. This is someone who can send a letter from D.C., but also from New York City. And so even though it's not Beekman's handwriting, I think it's entirely possible that he was using a scribe. And I will tell you one interesting thing I learned from the handwriting expert. Usually when you don't get the answer you want, you sort of ignore, as a historian, at least for me, Sometimes you overlook an answer you get that's also interesting. You know, I wanted it to be him. I wanted to, to prove that it was this guy, and uh, I wanted a match. But one thing I I I, I, was like, I thought about, it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. The letter writer wasn't trying to conceal their handwriting. And so this was either someone who was not a close friend of Sickles and didn't fear detection for that reason, or this was someone who used a scribe and therefore was – Completely certain that no one would ever figure out it was them, and so I think it's entirely possible that Beekman used a scribe to send these letters, and that he is the person who set this all up in motion, all these tragic events, uh, and put them in their course. That's a, a pretty impressive bit of detective work there. But I didn't. But I didn't succeed. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but going so far as to hire handwriting experts—that's dedication. That that's impressive.
0: Yeah, well, I just thought it was a really, the story will never be complete until we know exactly who sent this letter and why. But I do lay all the facts out there for the reader and and let them draw their own conclusions about who it might have been. But uh, we can't know for sure. We probably will never know for sure. So what was Teresa Sickles' allure? Uh, She was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, She was described in newspapers across the country as being one of the most beautiful women in America. Um, in fact, it, one newspaper article compared her to a beautiful uh, singer, and uh, another newspaper said that, that that comparison only flatters the singer, not Teresa. So she's gorgeous, but she's also brilliant. You know, in another era, in another time, she would have been a very important person in Washington, D.C. in her own right. She's fluent in multiple languages. She's the granddaughter of Mozart's librettist. She knows about classical music. She knows about opera. She understands literature. And so she's conversant in a wide variety of subjects. And in fact, when she was part of the American delegation to the United Kingdom, where, you know, there's a role where a woman really could have more of a professional role than she could almost anywhere else in society at the time, right, as a hostess, as someone was conducting diplomacy on behalf of the United States, cultivating friendships and relationships. She was incredibly successful. This was someone who distinguished herself at Queen Victoria's Court, a place that was renowned for its intellectual uh, environment and having all this collection of really important people from around the world. Teresa stood out as uh, being a really, really skilled diplomat. And so, you know, everything that someone could 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 want in a woman, you could find in Teresa.
1: So how does Daniel Sickles confirm that the affair was actually happening?
0: Sure. So, Woldridge conducts this stakeout across the street um, from the house where Key and Teresa are, are meeting. Again, we know about this house because of the anonymous letter writer. Woldridge... Uh, is able to So there's no doubt among the people who live in the neighborhood that Key is the man who's showing up in the house, right? Key is showing up regularly. He's meeting a woman there. They recognize him. I think it's a typical situation where Key's an important guy. The working class people of D.C. are kind of invisible to him. What he doesn't realize is that he's not invisible to them. They know what he looks like and uh, they know who he is. And the woman who meets him shows up with her head covered. So she shows up in disguise. But what he's able to figure out is that she has a, a one day wore a distinctive shawl with bugles on it. And Sickles recognizes this as the kind of a, a particular scarf that his wife owns. And so there's just really no hiding the truth in front of his face. His, uh, one of his best friends is having an affair with his wife.
1: And how does he react?
0: <laughs> uh, badly. He confronts her. Um, she admits it and faints when she comes to, he has her draft a confession and put everything in writing about how they meet, when they meet and has her sign it in front of witnesses, uh, the, the, the servants in the house and, uh, a best friend of Teresa's who picked a very bad weekend to come for a visit. Um, and so, you know, armed with this confession, he thinks about what to do. And he sends for his friend, Woldridge, and he also sends for his friend Butterworth, who is visiting from New York. And uh, Butterworth and Woldridge advise him on this. They say, you know, you could send her back to New York City. Congress is about to adjourn. You can uh, arrange for a divorce. People really don't need to know what happened. You can protect your reputation. He says, oh, no, he's the last person in Washington to know about this, which actually wasn't too far from the truth. And, um, you know, the next thing you know, and sort of the, the, what happens after that is a little bit of a matter of dispute, but uh, Butterworth heads to a private members club on the east side of Lafayette Square, which is about a two minute walk east of the Sickles house, finds Barton Key on the street. They start talking. Sickles approaches from the other direction, uh, announces that uh, Key is a villain who has defiled his bed and dishonored him, and has to pay for it, and uh, starts shooting at Key. How long from the point where he learns of the affair to when
1: he murders Key? What's the time frame?
0: Sickles and his wife have this dramatic confrontation on Saturday night, where she confesses to the affair in excruciating detail. And Sunday morning, Key appears in Lafayette Square, waving a handkerchief at the house, which is their prearranged signal for Teresa to meet him at their other house, uh, the one they used to carry on the affair. And so Sickles is losing his mind. He's, had this, he's watched his whole world upended. He's had this dramatic confrontation with his wife. He is, his friends are trying to calm him down. And then Key appears in Lafayette Square, waving a handkerchief at the house, trying to get his wife to come out and uh, meet at their their secret location, or what they believe to be their secret location, no longer secret. And so, uh, really, Saturday night to Sunday morning. It's a
1: very personal murder, isn't it? And and Key begs for his life.
0: Yeah, throughout the confrontation, Key really tries to stop Sickles from killing him. Um, Sickles has come armed with multiple weapons in a trench coat on an unseasonably February day, And uh, it was lucky for him, um, because the guns he brought, uh, he had a number of misfires, he ran out of ammo in one gun, Um, and so he actually has to use multiple weapons to kill Key, and so Key is shot multiple times over the course of a fairly lengthy confrontation, uh, begging for his life, accusing Sickles of murdering him. Um, Key very much understands what's happening to him, he knows he's in a bad situation, and um, you know, can't get out of it. And uh, you said it was very personal. Uh, One of the shots that hit Key uh, hits him in his artery, um, right below his crotch. And Sickles was angry, but he's also renowned for being a very good shot with a pistol. And so I guess you can draw your own conclusions on whether that was intentional or not.
1: Wow. (laughs) Um, Have you been to the exact spot where it happened? And and if so, does it look similar at all to what it looked like in
0: 1859? Yeah, so the layout of the square is similar. I actually have been there many times, and I walked, I walked the distance from the lot where Sickles' house was. It's no longer there. Uh, but I walked it from his house in a really brisk walk. It's about two minutes to get to the southeast corner of Lafayette Square where the uh, shots were fired. It's a confrontation in the street just east of Lafayette, uh, the street that marks the eastern boundary of Lafayette Square. And so, um, you know, the, the buildings that are on that site, really, if you're looking for houses that would have been there at the time, look at the White House and you can look at the Decatur House, the house that was occupied by Stephen Decatur. That's original to the time. But the buildings that are there now are designed to look authentic for that time period, and so it'll look a little bit like it did at the time. Of course, you've got Andrew Jackson's statue on horseback that would have been there uh, in the center of the park, and Lafayette Square would have been gated at the time. So otherwise, you know, it would have looked otherwise. It would have looked you know a little bit similar um, to, to, to today, even though some of the buildings are replicas of the era. How long does it take for Key to to pass away? So uh, Sickles uh, is interrupted when he's trying to fire the the, the coup de grace to his head, um, but but Key loses consciousness and stops speaking before he's even brought into the clubhouse, this private members' club on the eastern boundary of Lafayette Square. And, uh, you know, one of the people who carries him from the place where he's shot into the clubhouse asks him if he has any last words or anything for his family, anything to say. And uh, Key is not responsive. And so Key dies pretty quickly after the attack begins. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Well, Sickles, of course, is is a congressman. He is. (laughs) He's obviously treated far differently than a common criminal.
0: Um, Yeah. How differently? So Key, uh, I'm sorry, Sickles, uh, befitting a congressman, of course, you turn yourself in at the home of the attorney general. Uh, So he goes to the attorney general's house with Butterworth to turn himself in. The police show up for him at the uh, AG's house. Sickles asks to go back to his home and gather a few things before they take him to jail. They agree. And in fact, once he's taken back to his house, he says, I need to talk to my wife And the police incredibly uh, agree to let him do that as well. And he promises that he won't harm his wife. But of course, this is a guy who just gunned down the chief federal prosecutor for Washington, D.C. a few minutes earlier. But he's allowed to go talk to his wife. And uh, he tells her, I've killed him. And, um, you know, he is allowed to have a drink. And he offers uh, a drink. It's the last party at the Sickles house. He offers a drink to anyone who wants one. Only Butterworth takes him up on it. It's the final toast of the the Sickles family in that house. And then he's taken to jail in a carriage and it's almost like a parade. People are lining up in the streets to watch Sickles taken to jail and they're waving to him and he's waving back to them.
1: This must've been really difficult for Teresa.
0: Yeah. I mean, to know that everyone in the world knows about your affair, you know, it's going to be splashed across headlines all over the country you are in some ways the reason that your lover is dead. You are in other ways the reason your husband is going to prison and maybe will be hanged for killing him. I mean, there's just nothing good about this for Teresa. It really is hard to imagine uh, how, how awful this must have been for her. So
1: Dan Sickles has a leg up. He's a powerful attorney and he knows other powerful attorneys Can you talk about his defense?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. Sickles has the original legal dream team uh, put together to try this case. And it looks like it was very carefully selected when, in fact, from the point of his arrest, various friends and family members just started hiring lawyers. And so you have this huge team that's been put together, thrown together haphazardly, that actually worked together incredibly well. And his defense team will be led by none other than Edwin Stanton, who at this time is just a very prominent lawyer in Washington, D.C., with an active practice before the U.S. Supreme Court, and James Brady, who is a friend of Sickles from New York City and is probably the best lawyer in America uh, at the time. And so you have, a, you, have, you have Brady, you have Stanton, but you also have some local lawyers who really know these D.C. juries very well, And so they all focus on different aspects of the case, from jury selection to uh, finding witnesses and doing research on witnesses and doing opening and closing arguments. Every every member of the legal team has a different focus. Um, And so it's really impressive to watch these lawyers set aside their egos and work together uh, for a common purpose. How about the prosecutor? Uh, Was he competent? The prosecutor was very competent. In fact, uh, it was uh, Barton Key that sort of ranged in competence during his tenure as U.S. attorney. Key is really U.S. attorney because of his popularity and his political connections, really not because he's a great lawyer. And so he has an understudy by the name of Wold who uh, typically had to fill in for him when he was sick or on vacation or just not feeling up to a case. And so Wold is appointed as the U.S. attorney. In fact, Uh, Key's family was concerned that Buchanan would appoint a U.S. attorney who would throw the case or not be very good. Obviously, Buchanan uh, and and Sickles have have such a close, really father son relationship. And it's interesting, this is really one of the only instances in legal history where the prosecution will be delayed because the defendant killed the guy who would otherwise be prosecuting him. And so, Ould was considered. The prosecutor, the the prosecutor that the family wanted, Uh, he really was for all intents and purposes the better uh, prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. at that point, and so he's considered very good. He's going to be aided by uh, another one of Key's very good friends who's going to join him as co counsel um, to try to uh, try to get justice for his friend Key.
1: Well, there's obviously uh, for investigators no question as to who the killer is. No no, no question about that, so what
0: ends up being the defense's strategy? yeah, so they try a number of things they uh they never really uh they they allege and never really abandon this kind of spurious self defense argument that um yeah, you saw sickle shooting key, but you don't know what words passed between them. You know, maybe Key threatened to kill Sickles, and that's why he drew drew his gun. You know, people people are absolutely clear on who shot Key, but, you know, they never really abandoned this self-defense theory, and of course, one of the guns found at the scene didn't match the bullet that was taken out of Key. So they argue maybe that's Key's gun. After all, uh, you know, gentlemen were typically armed in Washington, D.C. at this point in history, and Key particularly was known to carry a firearm. In fact, it's thought that he was unarmed that day because he had recently changed suits uh, hoping to meet up with Teresa and had forgotten his gun in, in what he'd been wearing earlier. So maybe, maybe Sickles was acting in self-defense. But if you don't like that theory, maybe Sickles is just completely justified in killing him for having an affair with his wife. They certainly try to make that argument, which, of course, has no basis in the law or cases or statutes. Uh, But just that this this is a complete defense to murder if someone's having an affair with your wife. But if you don't like either of those theories, we got one more for you. Uh, Sickles, uh, who put on a trench coat on a warm February day and loaded it up with three guns and walked for two minutes, was actually temporarily insane at the time he committed the act and therefore can't be legally responsible. So those are the three defenses put forward by Sickles' lawyers. This
1: idea of temporary insanity. I mean, even in the late 1800s, was still a pretty novel defense but in the late 1850s it must have just blown the minds of some
0: people. Yeah, you really you really could fairly say that this is the the first at least the first well publicized use of the temporary insanity defense. You know the insanity defense you could go back to Hammurabi's code and find different punishments for different mental states. And um, so there's an old defense that if there was a mental defect that you might be able to escape responsibility for a crime, but the idea that you could be temporarily insane, because, you know, Sickles is quite lucid before the attack, and he spoke with many people immediately after the attack, including the attorney general and his guests in the house. So, there's no question that Sickles is, is perfectly fine. They're arguing that this very narrow stretch of time immediately leading up to the murder and including the murder um, was the product of uh, mental illness. Of course, it really is just a pretense for letting Sickles go if that's what the jury wants to do. So, we don't
1: have time to get into all of the intimate details of the trial, but what were some of the more interesting highlights? Of the trial for you?
0: So it's interesting to watch these, the greatest lawyers in the country in the same courtroom, both at odds with each other, struggling, one side struggling to save their friend from the gallows, the other trying to hang Sickles for what he did. So you have fascinating testimony from the Sickles, um, the servants in the Sickles house, if you're a fan of Downton Abbey or shows that feature the, the servant class living in these houses, watching what goes on, knowing a lot more that goes on than their masters suspect at the time. I really enjoyed the testimony of Teresa's maid about what she saw and what she knew of the affair. Um, so people testifying about what was happening in the Sickles' household uh, unbeknownst to, to, to Dan Sickles, you have really interesting and like, surprisingly modern forensic testimony about the bullets and the autopsy that I found very interesting and, you know, bullet trajectory and what that tells us about Key's position when the shots were fired. So, I mean, really, it's a 20-day trial in an era where homicide trials maybe took an afternoon And so just a really interesting case with a lot of interesting testimony, really laying bare a lot of the gossip and the the dark underbelly of Washington, D.C. society on the eve of the Civil War. Okay, a quick pause in this
1: interview, because Chris and I paused the interview at this point as well. He asked at this point that I offer a spoiler alert for listeners on the good chance that many of you will want to read the book and will want to be surprised on your own. That seemed to be more than a reasonable request, and I was happy to oblige. So stop now if you plan to buy the book, and you don't want the ending spoiled.
0: So what was the the verdict in the trial? Uh, Sickles found not guilty. So this is
1: unfortunately an example of how crime sometimes pays. Sickles comes out of this at least at first as a pretty heroic character to many.
0: Yeah, I think he really, for for millions of Americans, he was this heroic figure, you know, even like like our great trials and our great scandals today, uh, you had family members split over who they sided with. Key or Sickles, or maybe you hated both of them and liked Teresa, or maybe you felt bad for both Key and Sickles and hated Teresa. So, you know, like every major scandal, it was a source of controversy around dinner tables across the United States. But for millions of Americans, Sickles was a heroic figure who had vindicated the honor of his family and, um, you know, had, had, had eliminated a threat to his family and sent a message to scoundrels throughout the United States to respect, uh, the, the union of marriage.
1: So what happens to Daniel Sickles? Uh, does he remain a Congressman?
0: So Sickles still has some time left in his term in Congress. Sickles had recently been reelected shortly before the murder. And so he is, he's got some time to serve out in Congress, some calls for resignation. He's not interested in that. He actually really finds his voice during the secession crisis, where he speaks out on the House floor uh, against states that are leaving the Union or claiming to leave the Union in response to the election of Abraham Lincoln. When the war breaks out, Sickles goes back to New York and he finds his purpose in life. He raises thousands of men. Um, you know, He's just a natural leader, someone who is capable of recruiting leading large numbers of men. And so he becomes uh, one of the highest-ranking generals in the Union Army from the beginning of the Civil War. And his higher-ups have supreme confidence in him. Does he live up to their confidence? You know, it is one of the most hotly debated subjects in American military history with some really good arguments on both sides. I will tell you there's a book written about Sickles and particularly his actions at Gettysburg And it's called a Caspian Sea of Ink in reference to the number of letters and articles and essays that were written guessing and second-guessing Sickles' decision on the second day of Gettysburg. And so it's certainly not something we're going to resolve on this podcast, uh, something you couldn't resolve with 100 podcasts uh, because people are <laughs> genuinely split about it. But that was Dan Sickles, right? It's, that's the most Daniel Sickles things that ever happened. It's, he's done something provocative. He's done something unexpected. He's done something that he was told not to do. And people are divided on the subject. Uh,
1: so, Teresa... What happens to her, and what happens to their
0: marriage? Sure. Well, this is also something that uh, people are going to want to skip over if they if they are interested in knowing how it ends. But Sickles, who at the beginning of this was adamant that he was never taking his wife back, that she cheated on him, you know, was was just interested in moving ahead with a divorce, has a change of heart at the end. It's really, really unfair to Teresa that she's given so much agency in the affair and causing the the ruin of her marriage and getting key killed but also at the same time really infantilized by the public saying you know this poor woman was seduced but also she's responsible for everything that happened and whereas Sickles would have been able to remarry or move on in society uh, Teresa could never hope to find another husband uh, unless Sickles just took her back. And so Sickles actually does end up taking her back, and they do stay together. For how long that's a happy marriage, it's hard to say. She she ends up dying quite young of um, consumption, of tuberculosis. And so she really has a, a, a short life and doesn't have too many years to live at the conclusion of this.
1: Some out there believe that Dan Sickles was a hypocrite going bonkers because of a tryst when he was rumored to have been having affairs on his own. What do you make of that? Is there proof that Dan Sickles was an adulterer as well?
0: Yeah. And I think that was certainly true at different parts of his marriage and when and how many and who sort of all up for debate. But I, I think the, what's important to note is that Sickles was killing Key because Key had dishonored him. Right? So the fact that Sickles was also carrying on affairs from his perspective didn't do anything to get Key off the hook. Right? Because Key had done something to him, had taken something away from him. And so from his perspective, he wasn't a hypocrite, even if he was also carrying on affairs.
1: Okay. (laughs) So to change the subject, you've written a lot of very well-received books are there any that you've written that you think my audience would be interested in, or or any that are especially personal to you that yeah. you'd like to share?
0: So I think I think you know when you when you're talking about you know which of, which of your books should I read, which is a question I get a lot. It is sort of like picking among children, um, you know, who so who you like better. I have a close personal relationship with every book I've written. Uh, You know, every book represents my best effort to tell a story that I really loved and one for which I left it all out on the table. Um, So part of it, you know, if you're interested in the American Revolution, that's easy. That's founding rivals. If you're interested in the Civil War or the antebellum era, the causes of the Civil War, and these five lesser-known presidents who lived to see the Civil War, then, of course, the President's War is for you. Congressman Lincoln focuses on a very specific part of Abraham Lincoln's career and really, up to that point, had really not gotten the attention it deserved. You know, Lincoln becomes president having only had one job in the federal government before, which was his one term in Congress in the, um, you know, 1847 to 1849. And so I was fascinated in seeing how Lincoln's time as a member of Congress uh, affected what he did as president. And so that was a really uh, interesting book to write, but obviously it's very closely focused on Abraham Lincoln. All that's to say, I think everyone should go pre-order my new book, The Fighting Bunch which is about the only successful revolution on American soil outside of the one you know about. Uh, In 1946, a group of World War II veterans came back to find that their county had been taken over by a corrupt political machine that was running open casinos, open roadhouses in their town, houses of prostitution, that um, sheriff's deputies were being paid on commission. And so people are getting arrested right off the bus from war, and people are People are finding out that their parents had been uh, tortured and antagonized by these uh, deputies and the sheriff while they were getting shot at for democracy and for the freedom of the world. And so these veterans formed a nonpartisan, all-veteran GI ticket ran for office. Election day, the machine tries to steal the election as they had throughout the war years using force and fraud. And a small group of these veterans decided that they weren't going to let the machine get away with this and engaged in a six-hour firefight in the county seat uh, of an American county uh, against the sheriff and his men. And so it's a fascinating story. It really is uh, a one-of-its-kind story in American history. Certainly plenty of notorious stories in there for your audience, and uh, that'll be out in November. So I'd encourage everyone to visit Chris DeRoe's books com Just my name, ChrisDeRoseBooks.com, and uh, pre-order The Fighting Bunch. Um, check out what other books you might be interested in based on your historical interests, but also to, to pre-order this new one coming out in November. Excellent.
1: That, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, is it available as a pre-order through Amazon right now? Uh, right now, yeah, The Fighting Bunch. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. It, it, very interesting stuff. Yeah, let's do this again when the new one comes out. Absolutely. Yes. Let's revisit. Thanks again.
0: Hey, my pleasure.
1: Again, I have been speaking to Chris DeRose. He is the author of Star Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial that Changed America. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.